This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, of course, we'll talk about Black Lives Matter and the Democrats' proposals to reform the police. And we're still thinking about Trump's disastrous walk across Lafayette Square across from the White House for that Bible photo op outside St. John's Episcopal Church. Apparently, it was all Ivanka's idea. She's also been tweeting Bible verses. Amy Willens, our chief Ivanka correspondent, has a report. And Spike Lee has just released the movie of the week, an intense story about four black vets returning to Vietnam after 50 years and still trying to come to terms with what it did to them and what it did to black America. It's called The Five Bloods, and it stars Delroy Lindo. It's streaming on Netflix now. Ella Taylor will comment. But first, today's number one topic, of course, is the police and the people. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He teaches criminal justice at the law school at the University of Southern California. He's a frequent guest on NPR, NBC, CBS, other network news. Hi, Jody. Good to be with you, John. I should add that you have a new book coming out in August. What's the title? Yes, Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice, and the Law. And I use that blood-soaked epithet advisedly. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk about it but it definitely ties into current events. Definitely ties into current events. And how are you spelling the N-word in this title? Yes, it's N asterisk G-G-A. I know that many hours and days of negotiations went into what to put on the cover of this book. So congratulations on resolving that. Thank you. It's a transgressive and unsayable word, but there's no other word in the English language that you can use to paraphrase it. So, Democrats in Congress unveiled a proposed law to reform the police everywhere. Uh, The bill was introduced in the House by Karen Bass. She's chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She's from Los Angeles. She started out as an organizer with Community Coalition, one of the best grassroots groups in L.A. The bill is sponsored in the Senate by Kamala Harris. Here's what they proposed. Let me get your reactions. I'll go down the list. There's about eight eight or more uh, different things. First of all, they would make it easier to sue police officers for misconduct in civil court and prosecute them for criminal behavior. Well, yeah, of course, it would be uh, very helpful to have police held accountable by prosecutors. Someone like Kamala Harris did not hold a lot of officers accountable when she was the DA in San Francisco. Here in LA, that has been a problem. I don't know exactly what that means. Are they gonna come up with new standards that make it easier to prosecute officers? For example, move away from the reasonable fear or reasonableness standard toward a necessity standard, only using lethal force when it's necessary and there are no less drastic alternatives. So I'll be interested in the details of that proposal. They're also proposing to prohibit the use of chokeholds by police nationwide. That seems like an obviously good idea. Well, yeah, it's been talked about before, though. Here in L.A., Daryl Gates infamously said that black people may have some kind of anatomical quirk that makes them more prone to die from the chokeholds that his officers were applying in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, It seems like here we are again, racial injustice, Groundhog Day, covering the same uh, ground ground again 
a John, but yeah, okay, that, that's obvious. They're also proposing to prohibit some no-knock warrants nationwide. The article I read did not specify which kinds of no-knock warrants. I guess that's a step in the right direction. Perhaps, you know, that's what happened to Breonna Taylor in Louisville. No-knock warrants. She was shot dead for no good reason. You know, eliminating some, like you said, what does that mean? There's a lot of discretion there. We'll have to see. The devil always is in the detail. They've also proposed giving the Justice Department Civil Rights Division subpoena power to investigate local police departments nationwide. All right, yeah, but, you know, it depends on who's at the helm. If William Barr is at the helm, whatever standards you give him may not be applied in an effective way to make a difference. So maybe we'll have to see. The bill uh, would also mandate the use of body cameras and ban the transfer of certain military equipment to police departments. Well, mandating the use of body cameras. We've been over a lot of this ground before. You know, what happens to the footage from the body cam? Do they keep that footage? Do they get to make decisions about what to release, how to edit what they release before they release it, when to turn it on, when not to turn it on? Uh, maybe, but let's go on, you know? <laughs> this is a big one create a national database disclosing the names of officers with a pattern of abuse. Yeah, in the name of transparency, that should have been done a long time ago, of course. It's often resisted by police unions in their contracts, their collective bargaining agreements, and even some state legislators have uh, given them a cloak of anonymity. So that's a good move. Yeah, I think in California, we're not allowed to know the names of officers who've been found guilty by their own departments of excessive force or other kinds of misconduct. Outrageous, exactly. And so, you know, hopefully this moment will reverse those kinds of unconscionable protections for police officers. And even we've seen in Southern California, bad cops who get fired by the LAPD, they just go to work in Culver City or they go to work for the sheriffs or some other program. Oh yeah, you know, you can rove around as a corrupt cop and find a department that will take you in and forgive your sins, but not be at all understanding or forgiving about the people who they're bringing their billy cubs down on the head of for, you know, uh, smoking a joint in public. Obviously, this law is not going to uh, pass while the Republicans control the Senate and Trump is president, but presumably the Democrats can campaign around it this fall. And, and if Biden is elected and the Democrats regain control of the Senate, you know, this, this will become some version of this will become a law. Uh, let me talk about L.A., where we record our show. The L.A. Times maintains a blog of all the people killed by cops, officer-involved homicides in L.A. County. It's an amazing thing, and they've been doing it for years. It's on their website. It shows that police have killed 885 people in L.A. County since 2000. This is not just the LAPD. This is all the police departments in L.A. County. 80% were black or Latino. Every name is there. Some have little bios. Some describe the circumstances. They invite people to post memories, reminiscence, tributes. Uh, this year, 15. This year, 15 people have been killed by the police in L.A. County. And that's, of course, one of the main reasons why Black Lives Matter and all the people out in the streets have been demanding uh, defund the police. The mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, had proposed 
a 7% spending increase for the LAPD, which of course already consumes something like 53% of the city budget. Black Lives Matter held a rally in Pan Pacific Park a couple of weeks ago demanding defunding the police. 20,000 people came to that rally, unprecedented in the history of LA. The mayor didn't announce he was changing his mind for another week, and then he announced he had decided he wanted to cut the budget of the LAPD. He talked about $150 million. He changed his mind the day after a protest. You remember that protest? Well, what happened was he had a thousand protesters outside his own home in a march and protest led by Black Lives Matter, insisting that he budge and move from his recalcitrant position, that he was not going to cut funding for the police department while at the same time cutting funding for all other kinds of social programs and services throughout the city. The mayor said the money that he wanted to cut from a police budget would be invested in jobs programs, uh, health services, and other support for communities of color and young, especially for young people. And the city council president and several city council members have proposed the same uh, reductions for the uh, LAPD. The city council president said, here's a great quote, it's time to dismantle those systems that are designed to harm people of color, close quote. That's the president of the city council. That's a pretty striking change from the kind of politics that have governed the police in L.A. for the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, John, I want to see that rhetoric backed up by real change, though. You know, uh, a lot of people are now kneeling with protesters, uh, saying Black Lives Matter, expressing their care and concern. But sometimes that can be hollow if it's not backed up by real action. The budget that the mayor originally proposed, uh, the $5.5 billion annual unrestricted funds, nearly 54%, 53.7% of that budget was going to LAPD. And he didn't want to cut any of that. So now he's cut 100, 150 million of that. That's still really a small fraction of the overall amount of money that's going toward the LAPD and not going toward housing, not going toward education, not going toward any kind of health care, not going toward jobs. And that is what the protesters are really talking about. Deep cuts in the LAPD's budget that can redirect those resources to crime prevention, to relieving the misery of people that has them turn to crime in the first place. Yeah, let's talk about the long history of efforts to reform the police in L.A., which the ideas were much more far-reaching than cutting $150 million from the budget. After decades of protest by community groups and the ACLU, the Justice Department and the federal courts imposed a consent decree on the LAPD in 2001 that required them to not falsify evidence, not commit perjury. These are pretty good ideas to revamp their tools for tracking officer misconduct, to create an independent watchdog. They were, the LAPD was required to file reports with the federal courts regularly to show that they were complying with the consent decree. This lasted for 12 incredible years. Nobody thought there'd be 
12 years of federal court supervision of the LAPD to make sure that they didn't falsify evidence or commit perjury. Consent decree was finally lifted in 2013. What's your assessment of the success of the 12 years of federal supervision of the LAPD? Well, the 12 years was necessary because there was such rot at the core of the police department. It's easy to forget that after the uh, 92 riots involving the acquittal of the officers who were videotaped beating Rodney King in, in Simi Valley, that there were no great reforms after that. You know, life went on. And it wasn't until 99, the Rampart scandal, and to understand the Rampart scandal, take uh, police corruption movies that you've seen over the years. Oh, say, take LA Confidential, Serpico, and Training Day, wrap them all together, and you still don't have how bad Rampart was. And we made some headway, you know, certainly uh, the police stopped the, uh, as much broken windows policing as they had been practicing before. I've had officers come to USC and say in the 80s and 90s, the way we uh, police South Central was, if you spit on the sidewalk, if you jaywalk, you were on the concrete with your hands behind your back. Because they were mostly black and brown uh, citizens, we accepted that as a city. That was policy. Broken windows policing was policy. That was, re that was reeled in some, but only in some places. And in uh, Skid Row, for example, in 2006, well, the LAPD said, well, our hands are tied when it comes to, you know, every neighborhood that's in South Central cracking down on them in that way. But what about homeless people? Huh, let's put all these officers in Skid Row and have them crack down on the down and out in the name of solving homelessness. And here's literally how they uh, proposed to solve homelessness. They would cite, handcuff, lock the homeless up, and tell them the way to get this off your record is to go to one of these mega shelters, get in one of their 12-step programs to heal your inner brokenness because from their point of view, of course, the problem of homelessness isn't a lack of affordable housing, a lack of a job, a lack of adequate health care. It is a problem of personal responsibility and personal deficiencies. And once you address those, you won't be homeless anymore. So they engaged in so-called therapeutic policing. It, it immiserated the people in, in, in Skid Row, and it shows how we had all that money, all those resources, all those police officers doing a job they should not have been doing. That's what they, these protesters mean by defund the police. What the hell are the police doing becoming street-level social workers? Social workers don't have guns and billy clubs and stun guns and mace, right? That's not a social worker that you would look welcome and invite to help you solve your problem. But that's what we had police doing. And then L.A. made another kind of attempt to reform the police, and that was to hire more cops who were not white men. The LAPD has 10,000 officers. They post their racial and ethnic and gender breakdown regularly. The most recent one on their website says of the 10,000 LAPD officers, only 3,000 are white, and of those, 500 are women. They say today almost half the police force is Latino, and they say 1,800 of the 10,000 officers are women, 
was argued for a long time that more people of color and more women on the police force would mean less violent policing and better policing. What do you think the experience has been of the reduction of a white men on the LAPD? Well, our experience has given the lie to the idea that all you need to do is change the demographics without changing the culture and you'll have your fix. Take LA County's DA, Jackie Lacey, is a black woman, right? She hasn't held police accountable. She's been a tough on crime, law and order prosecutor. Uh, she's especially been tough on marginalized groups, blacks in particular. At a recent debate, she said, yeah, maybe I do uh, prosecute a disproportionate number of blacks, but they make bad choices, right? So just because you have a black or person in a position or a woman in a position doesn't mean that the logic of that position, the culture of that position has undergone a fundamental change. And we need to recognize that, get beyond the politics of pigmentation and realize that Black Lives Matter has been saying all along that it isn't a black and white issue, it's a black and blue issue. You know, and you can go back to rap songs right out of LA, you know, in the uh, in the late 80s and 90s, NWA, Ice Cube, a lot of them were talking about black cops showing out for the white cops, showing they could be just as top, tough, you know, for their white cop uh, comrades, right? So I, I would rather, John, to put it simply, almost any day of the week, not almost any day of the week, any day of the week, I'd rather roll with a John Brown than a Clarence Thomas, all right? It's not about just what's on the skin, it's what's in the heart. And that's, and, and that's what we see even with the police. Now we're going to try cutting the police budget. Of course, Minneapolis shows the big solution, which is abolish the existing police department. But then some people say, well, what are you going to do about crime? So let's talk about what the police should do, what we want them to do. Yeah, abolish police or defund the police doesn't mean at least in my interpretation, people have different interpretations of what that really means. But I think the um, right now, one of the most sustainable interpretations is we need to divert resources from the police department to social services, to jobs, to housing, to health care, so that police, we aren't trying to criminalize our social problems, trying to arrest our way out of our social problems, trying to direct the police at every social ill we have, rather we can focus police on what they are really equipped to do and best able to do. And that is solve serious crimes like robberies, rapes, murders, the kinds of crimes that are going unsolved now at a staggering rate in some urban areas. Some, some places there's only a 40, 45% uh, uh, um, resolution rate when it comes to murders, there's only a 20% resolution rate when it comes to rape, right? There are rape kit backlogs that are warehouse stacked in police departments, not because the police are starved of resources, but because a lot of those resources are going towards proactive broken windows policing, cracking down on minor offenses. Like look at New York, where they hire all these new police officers to chase after turnstile jumpers right? Uh, think about all of the money that could be diverted from going after turnstile jumpers, 
to, to solving real crimes, serious crimes um, like murder and rape, which takes a lot of investigative work, which takes a lot of resources. Um, and, you know, something like turnstile jumpers, well, maybe public transportation should be free. You know, all of the money you're, you're pouring into the police department and other and into your jails, which are extremely costly to lock somebody up in prison in California can be $35,000, dollars $50,000 a year. You know, we could divert a lot of that toward um, crime prevention rather than deterrence. And what I mean by that is you can prevent crime by lifting people out of criminogenic conditions, lifting them out of poverty, providing them food and shelter and, and something other than crumbling schools, which will drop, which will take away a lot of the temptation to turn to crime in the first place, rather than solve your crime problem by trying to deter people who are desperate from turning to crime uh, by having a police officer with a badge, a gun, a billy club, and a monopoly on state violence standing on every corner, right? And that's what they're really trying to get at. One last thing. Over the last couple of weeks here in L.A. and really everywhere in the United States, We've seen tens of thousands of people marching peacefully, militant, but peaceful. And we've seen a huge police presence uh, at these marches, especially here in L.A. We've seen police club marchers. We've seen them arrest masses of peaceful protesters. On the other hand, we saw virtually no police presence to prevent looting or catch looters when the big shopping centers on the west side, like the Grove or Santa Monica Place, they were looted for hours on live TV without a cop in sight. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people watched it on TV and said, where are the cops? One police uh, defender called it, quote, a tactical miscalculation, close quote. Some of my friends wonder where, whether if the police aren't trying to make a point. You don't like the police? You want to cut our budget? We'll show you what the city would be like without the police. Uh, you think there might be anything to that? Yeah, there might be, because you remember that, you may remember that Eric Garner, when he was choked to death, and the, one of the original I Can't Breathe protests before George, um, before George Floyd, um, when the grand jury refused to indict the officers who were responsible for his death, the, um, the marches started in New York. Uh, Bill de Blasio made some noises that were sympathetic to the protesters. And the police department was so upset that they said, we're going to have a work slowdown. We're not going to get out of our cars and write summonses anymore. We're not going to um, stop question and frisk anymore. We're going to stop our proactive policing. We're going to send two police officers to every call, right? And so there was this slowdown. And they assumed that all hell would break loose and people would come to appreciate how valuable the police are. To the contrary, and I just read an article about this in uh, a, a science magazine recently because it was a natural experiment. What happens when you tamp down the police presence when you don't have them practicing broken windows policing does indeed crime spike. And in New York, it didn't spike. In fact, it remained level and went down in some places while they were doing that slowdown. So they showed that they weren't as necessary 
through their actions as they were trying to claim to be and as many people thought they were. And the same thing happened when the, when the um, judge told them to stop their stop and frisk policing as they were doing it. And it went down from 600 and something thousand a year to under 100,000 or 80,000 or whatever. Again, there were all kinds of apocalyptic predictions about how crime would spike, and it didn't. It again continued to go down, which means that all of those resources that we were putting into broken in windows policing, all of that um, negative um, resentment, that reservoir of resentment that was being created between the police and the black community was totally unnecessary. It wasn't providing extra safety, but it was providing, you know, police with many more jobs and a sense of, you know, kind of invincibility. So, uh, yeah, they, I'm sure that there could, that could have been one of their messages um, in this, on this particular occasion, but often that backfires and boomerangs because we've come to realize that they aren't as necessary as they would want us to believe. Jody Armour, he's a professor of law at USC. Thanks, Jody. Let's do this again. Thank you so much, John. Anytime. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for Ivanka Watch. For that, we turn to our chief Ivanka correspondent, Amy Willens. Amy, of course, is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her work on Haiti, and recently a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Trump made a big mistake when he did that Bible photo op standing in front of St. John's Episcopal Church across from the White House after using pepper balls and flashbang grenades to clear demonstrators out of the way. That really backfired. The Episcopal Bishop of Washington reacted with outrage and horror. But what did Ivanka have to do with this? Well, the... White House said that it was all Ivanka's idea. (laughs) That is to say, I don't know if her idea was the pepper spray and the flashbang bombs, but her idea was to go over to St. John's. It would make him look good with his Christian supporters, presumably his evangelical supporters. I think it was Maggie Haberman at the New York Times who reported that, quote, even some White House officials privately expressed dismay that the president's entourage had not thought to include a single person of color, close quote. It seems to me, though, they weren't really trying to represent America. They were trying to represent the Christian evangelical base of Trump voters. And uh, how many people of color are part of the evangelical base of Trump voters? Largely, they're white. So this this group really did look like a... It looked like a, a bunch of conservative elders in an evangelical church in their dark suits, marching toward a church. Uh, it did not look like a rainbow coalition of Americans. There's been some interesting reporting about the Bible that Trump brought with him. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole story. First of all, Trump didn't bring the Bible with him. Ivanka brought the Bible with him. Everybody concentrates on the fact that the Bible emerged, this symbol of Christianity emerged from a uh, $1,540 Max Mara 
white patent leather bag. Yeah. Well, someone had to. It was, otherwise, it would have been someone's expensive attache case. I'm really, I'm not, it's funny, but I'm not that interested in that fact. What I'm interested in is it's the wrong Bible. <laughs> um, my first thing was, because I'm a Jewish person, why does Ivanka Trump, who's an Orthodox Jew, not, I'm not, but she is an Orthodox Jew and a convert, so ostensibly knows more about Orthodoxy than even an Orthodox Jew. Um, why does she have a Christian Bible available to her? Where did that Bible come from? It has a New Testament in it. This was the revised standard version that she had of the Bible. That has the Old Testament and the New Testament. And according to my sources, no Orthodox Jew would ever have such a Bible in her house. Jews have only the Old Testament in their house. They have uh, a translation called the Art Scroll. It's the Tanakh. It has the Hebrew in it. And they do not have the New Testament in their house. They don't go into churches. They don't touch the stuff. So it's weird that she brought a Bible that she has. Maybe she stole it from a hotel, but it's not a Gideon Bible. So it's not that either. So okay. we don't know where did Ivanka catch this Bible. It might be something that's just lying around in the White House. She put it in her bag. It's not the family Bible. It's not the children's school Bible. It's just a Bible that to them, to Trump's, any Bible is any other Bible because they're not a very religious family. But you say it was the wrong Bible. How can it be the wrong Bible? It's the wrong Bible. In fact, in America, you know what tribe of Christians people are from, by which Bible they use. And among evangelicals, the Revised Standard Version is basically not even really much of a Bible. It's not even a Bible. They use the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version, the New Living Translation, and the good old literary, fabulous King James Version of the Bible. But they don't use the one Ivanka brought. So, I mean, it might be a good Episcopalian Bible. It's a, the Revised Standard Version is the Catholics use it. The Eastern Orthodox use it in America. It's not that outlandish a Bible. It's just not the right Bible for the people to whom Trump was intending to speak. Well, when I was trying to find out about this, I Googled Ivanka and Bible and handbag. I got half a million hits. This is just in a couple of days. So I think you can say the Bible in the handbag was big news. Um, the Bible backfired. <laughs> the Bible backfired. I don't think those two words have been put together before. <laughs> <laughs> well, elsewhere in Ivanka Bible news, before the now legendary photo op, she tweeted a Bible verse. Tell us about that. She's so religious. It was from Second Kings, and it was the Lord said, I have heard your prayers and seen your tears. I will heal you. This seems very reassuring. It's, you know, what people want from religion. But what was the context in the Bible? Yeah, so I assume she got it from a Google search. In context, this quote is about the Lord uh, rescuing his people, the Jews, from a mad Assyrian king. Now, that's not really the, the people that, that Trump is going after right now. With his with his photo op in front of a, an Episcopalian church. And then shortly after this tweet, 
there was Ivanka news that Ivanka had been the graduation speaker scheduled at a place called Wichita State Tech, and they canceled her because of the response of the White House to all of the turmoil in America. And then she tweeted about being canceled, quote, our nation's campuses should be bastions of free speech. Cancel culture and viewpoint discrimination are antithetical to academia. Listening to one another is important now more than ever, close quote. And then her father pepper sprayed and flash bombed a crowd trying to express its opinion peacefully. Okay, it wasn't on a campus. That's the only way in which it differs. This is not a person who believes in free speech or anything else for that matter, or the Bible or whatever it is that they're professing to believe in. They believe in one thing, and that is the Trump family. And that's clear from their behavior in the past few days and the Trump victory. Now, she did release the speech. It was fabulous. She looked like an airline flight attendant (laughs) in her bizarre getup, but wearing what I take to be, and let me be very clear, my aunt used to wear these things, David Webb jewelry, turquoise and gold jewelry, very fancy items, matching earrings and a pin, a pin. No one wears a pin anymore. (laughs) And really the speech is just, she looks like some kind of a marionette or something. It's kind of sad, Uh, but she did put it out there because the uh, faculty of Wichita State Tech said, we are not having her. More than 400 faculty signed that. In the speech which you have watched, what does she say about the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th? Well, she didn't say anything about it because it was pre-recorded in May. So she had nothing to say about George Floyd. He was, you know, not a, an important national martyr at the moment. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. Yeah, exactly. It hadn't happened yet. So he was just walking around. He might have seen it if it had been broadcast. So that's our uh, Ivanka update. Is there anything we need to know about uh, the brothers, Don Jr. and little Eric? Well, since I've been thinking a lot about how what's on the mind of the Trump family is the Trump family, uh, I was, as usual, outraged by Trump's behavior toward the environment when he declared that the, now the national parks will be open to hunters. Because I felt not only is that disgusting in general, But he knows his boys love to hunt. They love to kill animals with high-powered guns. And so he opens up our national parks so the Trump family can go hunting. There has to be some kind of way to defend the environment against this family and this president. It's just a, it's an outrage. Amy Willens is our chief Ivanka correspondent. Amy, thank you for today's report. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. If we 
could go to the movie theaters this week, we could watch the new Spike Lee film about Vietnam, The Five Bloods. We can't do that, but we can watch it at home on Netflix. For comment, we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Pleasure to be back, John. So what kind of film is The Five Bloods? Oh, that's a great question. Well, it, it combines almost every genre, the American film genre and others that I can think of. But it's got two hours and 35 minutes to do that. <laughs> and although sometimes it's, one can get a little bit lost in the, uh, in the shouting and the, uh, the rage, there's a sense in which Spike Lee pulls it off. This began life, believe it or not, as a Disney action-adventure film for all the family that, um, about five guys who go to look for gold that they found earlier on in their lives. With a nod to Treasures of the Sierra Madre and actually every ancient fable about the evils of mammon that you can think of. And Spike Lee, of course, has turned it into something completely different, which is a kind of history of the Vietnam War and of American race relations and of American politics from the point of view of four African-American veterans of the Vietnam War in the present who returned to Vietnam in search of um, a huge number of gold bars belonging to the CIA that they found in their first tour of duty. And uh, the film is replete with uh, news footage of then and of now. It begins with Angela Davis' famous speech about the future of America as a fascist state. But it's really about these five guys, and actually the strongest parts of the movie are when we, we follow them around Vietnam. There are many uh, extremely graphic action scenes there, but if I can survive them, anybody can. <laughs> um, in which we, but this being Spike Lee, we actually see the older men in the present going back in flashback. <laughs> the center of the film is an embittered, broken man, one of the four bloods, played beautifully by Delroy Lindo, who is just a marvelous actor, who said in an interview I read um, that when he first heard he had to be a Trump supporter, a black Trump supporter, he messaged Spike Lee and said, do I really have to do this? Uh, and Spike Lee convinced him that it was integral to uh, the travails of this man who was broken by his experiences uh, and also by um, a secret, which is only revealed at the, at the very end of the movie. He's very, he's very much representative of a man who has been so embittered and so destroyed by what happened to him. And it's well known, of course, that um, black servicemen bore the brunt uh, of the casualties of the Vietnam War. Uh, but that he is interested only in himself now and in getting his hands on the money and, and so on. That becomes a, a, a big issue. 
uh, Spike Lee has never really been a realist movie maker. His films are highly stylized. They're artificial. They're designed in an almost Brechtian way to alienate and the viewer and, and put, the, put the viewer on the spot. You know, this man is, uh, has no inner life virtually except for his anger. And I think that's what we're meant to think about. The part of the Delroy Lindo character that, that I found the most moving was the, the scene where, where they're going upriver on a boat on their way to search for the gold. This is kind of the Apocalypse Now uh, segment. And uh, they stop at a, a floating market, which is beautiful. But Delroy Lindo just goes crazy with rage over a Vietnamese guy trying to sell him a live chicken. I'm not sure what got me about that scene, but somehow we we see the 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 suffering and the misery underneath his rage. Maybe that was it. Let me say the other actors are wonderful. I loved Clark Peters who was so memorable in Treme and The Wire and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. also memorable in The Wire. Yes, and, and Jonathan Majors also, who has a difficult part to play as, as the son of, uh, the wronged son of, uh, of his parents. Um, it's a, actually probably the only truly nuanced performance in the movie is that, that he has inherited all the wounds of, of the black vets. And Spike Lee also wants this to be a, a history lesson. As you said, the film opens with a, mont- a montage of real news clips. They are the most horrifying images from eight or 10 years of war. You know, napalm children, monks who've set themselves on fire, live executions. I, I found it unbearable. I-, I couldn't watch that opening montage. And then throughout the film, there, he takes little breaks to post historical facts on screen. What was me lie? Who was Crispus Attucks? Crispus Attucks was the first person killed in the American Revolution, and he happened to be a black man. Stuff like that, uh, like that, would be on the history quiz that comes uh, that came after uh, you watch this. It's something nobody else tries to do. I think that for museum pieces like you and me, um, <laughs> we do know a lot of that of that history. But I I think that the film is also pitched at the very young. Of- yeah you know, Black Lives Matter. And as such, I didn't have a problem with that. But if I may quote my late great friend, F.X. Feeney, excellent film critic who was, I worked with at, the, at LA Weekly, he said something that really struck me and really influenced my attitude towards film criticism, which is that a film doesn't necessarily have to cohere in order to be great. And I think that's true of this film, is that it's often quite slap happy um, in some respects and aesthetically speaking, but it's alive. And I think that's, that's what FX meant. Um, and, and I think that is certainly true of this film, even though you can find all kinds of technical faults with it. Yeah, A.O. Scott made, made a similar point, which, which I uh, noted. Spike Lee's strength as a political filmmaker has always resided in his ability to bring contradictions to chaotic life rather than to resolve them in any ideologically coherent proposition. This is the opposite of a shortcoming. A.O. Scott says, the film is not an analysis of chaos, but instead an indelible embodiment of it, close quote. 
Um, which makes it extremely timely, of course, because we are living in chaos for all the reasons that I don't have to enumerate. <laughs> so it's, I'm going to quote uh, Tony Scott again, it's a Western concerned with greed, honor, loyalty, and revenge. It's a bittersweet comedy about a group of male friends looking back and growing old. It's a platoon picture about a dangerous mission. It's a father-son melodrama, an adventure story, a caper, and a political prop. <clears throat> and a political provocation. I would add, it's Apocalypse Now with a happy ending. A musical as well. Um, there's a bit of, when they go to a bar right at the beginning of the movie, that's just delightful, actually, and very funny. And one of the soldiers does a little bit of minstrelsy there for us all that uh, is, is vintage Spike Lee. Spike Lee's Vietnam film, The Five Bloods, starring Delroy Lindo, is playing now on Netflix. So, Ella, if I need to recover from the intensity, the suffering, the shouting, the horror, the misery of The Five Bloods, can you recommend something, please? I can. I can recommend a delightful film about cancer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that, actually. Um, it's a film called Baby Teeth that will be playing on digital and cable VOD, VOD as of this Friday. And it's a, in some ways structured just like any coming of age dramedy, except that the heroine has a very serious form of cancer. And I generally do not like cancer movies because they, they tend to be very, fit into a very conventional narrative arc that will end in inspiration. And it's a lazy device for a movie, not here. Uh, the movie is directed by uh, Shannon Murphy of Killing Eve, um, who is one of these cheeky, nervy Australians. Um, and it has a beautiful script written by Rita Kalnagai. The, the, the teenager at the heart of it, uh, Miller, is played by Eliza, Eliza Scanlon, who had the misfortune to be cast as Beth in Little Women, in the recent film Little Women. <laughs> a thankless part <laughs> where you just have to die bravely. She's very different here. She's full of pepper and vinegar and um, absolutely wonderful. She, and it's set in Australia because uh, they're all Australian. She, at the beginning of the film, she is kind of timid and overwhelmed by her situation. She's pretty ill. And she happens to meet right at the beginning of the movie, um, a young, hapless, feckless drug dealer who's marvelously played by Toby Wallace. And they start hanging out together, much to the consternation of her already beleaguered parents, who are played by two great Australian actors, um, Ben Mendelsohn, who plays a kind of bemused music therapist, and Essie Davis of, of Miss Fisher's, Fisher's Murder Mysteries and uh, the horror movie, The Babadook. She's a wonderful actress. The wonderful thing about this movie is it's about people doing their best and mostly failing. The great British playwright and writer Alan Bennett once said when I interviewed him for the weekly years ago that from an artistic standpoint, people are much more interesting when they're trying to be good than when they are doing wrong. And this film absolutely bears that out. I mean, the parents are just nuts, you know, and they just, they do everything wrong. They're warm and loving parents, but uh, they're distracted by the wrong things. Uh, and it falls to the young people to introduce them to crazy living. <laughs> uh, 
the, the family's pretty crazy to start with, but it gets even crazier. And there is something incredibly moving um, about these people struggling with a situation that doesn't have a solution, a good solution. So I highly recommend it. Um, it's chaotic. It's funny. It's it's full of Aussie cheek and very sweet as well as uh, as well as very sad. And it's a marvelous take that puts uh, the fault in our stars to shame completely. It's Baby Teeth, video on demand on digital and cable on Friday. This has been Ella Taylor with News You Can Use, TV in the Age of the Virus. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. A pleasure as always, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.